I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today has been the most requested guest by slow-mo listeners since we started. A world-renowned philosopher, an international best-selling author, Alain de Botton. Alain has written on love, travel, architecture, and literature. His books have been described as philosophy of everyday life. Alain started and helps run the School of Life, a school in London dedicated to a new vision of education, something that I personally believe we desperately need. His latest book, published in September 2019, is a collection of essays titled The School of Life and Emotional Education. What an honor to have you with me today, Alan. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> You're along. Good to see you. Very nice to see you. Thank you. I'm so glad this could happen. Oh my God. I can't believe we finally meet. You have no idea how many people recommended that we meet. <laughs> Likewise. I'll start by saying I wanted to discuss around a thousand topics with you. And so I ended up having to prioritize. And I, I don't know if that will please my listeners, but I want to talk about love. And I have to tell you up front that I almost agree with almost all of your views on it, other than a couple. So let's start with the alignment first, if you don't mind. What? And I actually, this is, I swear, this is a question. This is not a trick question. What is love? When I say I love someone or something, what does that mean? I know the feeling, but I honestly don't know what it is. Look, I think one way to look at it is to think of love as a form of deep connection to another human being. Now, what does it mean to connect? It doesn't merely mean to talk. It doesn't merely mean to be in somebody's presence, though these things can help. It means a very specific kind of dialogue. And if I can put it sort of metaphysically, I think it is when two souls meet. Now, what is the soul? I think the soul is the vulnerable, essential self. It's who we are in the middle of the night. It's who we are when we're scared. It's who we are when we're most alive. It's who we are when we're joyful. It's something, it's the profound bit of us. And when the profound bit of me meets the profound bit of you, and there is understanding and sympathy, I think then we are getting close to something like love. And, you know, let me say, this is quite possible between two people who will never um, take each other's clothes off, or perhaps even meet in physical space. It's a moment of, of love. I mean, the opposite of love is isolation, disconnection, feeling of total loneliness. and um, Not hate. No, I mean, no, I think that's, no. I would make a, a continuum with love at one end and loneliness at the other. So interesting. So we are most loved and we feel closest to love at those moments when we can show ourselves as we really are and another person can show themselves to us. 
these moments are rare, you know, for reasons that are worth exploring. You know, part of what it means to be an adult is to be defended against all sorts of risks, risks of humiliation, attack, belittlement, etc. We have a lot of armor. And we're very far often from being in a state where we can meet another person in our raw condition. But when we do, I think that can be a moment of, of love. And, and so love does involve risk. It involves giving something to somebody that they could use against you, and, but hopefully won't. And it genuinely is a relief from the worst thing in the world, which is, as I say, isolation, alienation. So I see that, and I agree, by the way, and it's such an interesting point of view. The question, though, is, so love between two people is different than I always say I love butterflies, right? And I sort of have the same feeling. I don't know how to explain that, of the way I, I want butterflies in my life, like the way I want my dear departed son in my life. And there is that same, almost same exact feeling. And, and my challenge as an engineer is I can actually explain with logic every other emotion. Like fear is a moment in the future is a little more risky than a moment in the present, right? And that's fear. Very simple to understand. But love, I don't get. What is it? So I connection, do I feel like I belong to this other thing? I want this thing in my life. I want to be with that other thing. What does it mean? Well, okay, so let's move as engineers <laughs> to borrow your engineering mindset. If we want to try and build an equation I mean, look, one thing I'm struck by is that there's something around vulnerability. There is something around weakness seems quite connected to the deeper form of communion between two people. If I call up a friend and I say, how are you? And they go, I'm terrific. I just got a million dollar raise and my relationship's great. I might admire them, but I don't feel close to them. In fact, I might feel very lonely. But <laughs> yeah. if I call them up and they go, I can't bear it. Sometimes I just want to kill myself. I'm so sad about so many things. I'm so worried about so many things. I feel connected to that. Interesting. So something very important is going on when we hear about other people's problems. I mean, look, I think that life is a desperate emergency for all of us. <laughs> all the um, time. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much all the time. I think it is a desperate journey. We almost just can't even admit it to ourselves how desperate it is, but it is desperate all the time. And I think when we can just admit that to another human being and feel that they suffer as we do, then this is the beginning of something special. I was joking to a friend who's gone through a lot of pain, and we were discussing the ideal community, and the ideal community would be, and I don't mean to be adolescent or macabre or whatever, would be one in which everyone in the community would have at one point gone through an experience that they thought, I'm not going to be able to make this, I will take my own life. But they decided to keep going. Those who've gone there and who would be willing to live that reality openly, because some people might have lived that and just not go there ever again, but those who are able to acknowledge what that means, they will be friends. We are the deepest sort of community. Look, let's go to Christianity. So for Christianity, human beings are broken by necessity. We are imperfect beings, abandoned by our creator in a world which we can't control, which is constantly mysterious, etc. There is the danger of pride. 
superbia in Latin. Pride cuts us off from other people and from love. Correct. It basically means I don't need anyone. I'm okay. I'm solid. But the reason why in Christianity the weak and the poor and the desperate have such a privileged role is because they are the ones who know about their need for others, their need for God, and their need for others closer to them. So I think all this is starting to tell us things about what, what, what is really going on, what we really want in love. And look, I mean, let's get sexual here. Some people might say, might say, well, this has got nothing to do with like, you know, the birds and the bees and like young people and getting together with somebody. And again, let's look at what sex is. Deeply strange, embarrassing, <laughs> vulnerable. Very unlike the image you show on the outside world, right? Sure. So to be able to show yourself sexually to another person and be accepted. Wow. What an amazing thing. We call it sexy, but that's just a shorthand for amazing. and close and intimate and loving. I don't mean in a sort of sweet, lovey-dovey way. I mean, I just mean amazing. If you have a kink that you've never told anyone and, I don't know, you like to be observed across 200 meters in a park while you wear a particular kind of sock or something and you are able to tell someone and someone is able to welcome that and integrate that into their life, yeah. you're much less lonely. That's an act of love. So I think we often look at sex as some completely foreign, weird realm that comes along and disrupts love, and it does in some moods, but it also belongs to the project of love around getting to be known by somebody else in our most vulnerable deep selves. And I think that moment of connection really is, here is who I really am entirely bare. Exactly. Bare of my clothes, but also bare of my masks, the egos I go through life. This is me without pretending to be anything that I'm not yes. and accepted. And I think sex in that manner is definitely a very powerful love tool. I think there's a real longing in every human being to try and get their life as close as possible to their reality. We can't do it all the time and in all contexts. And of course, sometimes we have to be in inverted commas, professional, etc. But I think the longing which drives us in our friendships and our relationships and our relationship to art is, is a desire to be ourselves, properly ourselves around others. And I think that sometimes when people have a breakdown, what gets called a breakdown, it's often because the gap between the deep self and the sort of surface self has grown so huge. And there seems no way of allowing the world into your reality. And you just feel like having a breakdown is the only option. But I think often behind the breakdown is a desire for authenticity. Yeah, and to stop pretending. For love in the, in the deep sense. Yeah. Can I go to one of my favorite comments from yours is the idea that we're imperfect creatures. And in every possible way, I love that concept of how the modern world tries to convince us that the way to succeed and progress and find a place in life, if you want, is to be as perfect as you can. While in reality, it's almost the design itself is imperfection, which in a funny way makes the word imperfection an oxymoron. Because if all of us are imperfect, then that by definition is perfection, isn't it? I mean, what is wrong with us accepting the fact 
that to be a perfect human, you have to be a little irrational, you have to be a little insane, you have to be a little... And you talk about that a lot. So would you tell us a bit about that point of view of I'm imperfect and I'm okay with it? I mean, again, we started with love. Love is the acceptance of somebody's imperfections. If you think of how a parent loves a child, most parents know that their children are very flawed and, you know, not perfect. They don't need to be perfect, but it's okay not to be perfect. You will be loved anyway. So many of us have that experience of what is like to be loved as an imperfect being, but we live in a very demanding world where partly because of the amazing achievements in science, where perfection is possible in a very limited arena. You can create a circuit board, etc., which has no design flaws in it, but it's a very small... I dare say no. I dare say maybe, no. Maybe not, maybe not. But I think that we've been very impressed, understandably, by our achievements as a species. Yeah, yeah. But those achievements are, in my view, nothing more than a good approximation for what we cannot measure beyond, you know. So we use Newton's laws to put a man on the moon, but the reality is Newton's laws are in no way accurate. They're no way near reality, as a matter of fact. Yes, yes, they work for that limited project. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. So look, we've come from a world in which the major faiths always accepted that humans were imperfect, and we created a human and a divine world. The divine is the realm of perfection, and the human is the realm of imperfection. And we accepted this. Then what happens somewhere in early modernity is this fateful, fateful decision. And the United States has a big role to play in that history to try and build Jerusalem, not in the next world, but in this world with our hands on this hill. And this is a fateful moment in history because, first of all, there's so much intolerance built into this. Sadly. I mean, if humans are supposed to be perfect, my God how much you're going to crucify the person who remains imperfect. Imperfect, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not the first to say it. We're living in a very, very intolerant world currently because we simply cannot accept our flaws and we can't have a good relationship with our imperfection. And I think this is an absolutely key thing. What is a good relationship to imperfection? You know, psychoanalysts talk about this process of splitting the, the, the mind likes to split and it likes black and it likes white and it likes perfect and imperfect, etc. And of course, the reality is we're all this bewildering kind of mixture. There are no gods and there are no monsters. Everyone is a mixture. But this is such an achievement of the imagination to understand. You get it in great novels. Dostoevsky will show you that there's no such thing as a monster. Tolstoy will, will show you that. But this insight is not stable enough in the world. It gets lost. So there's a lot of unnecessary suffering because I do think that forgiveness is based on the recognition of mutual imperfection. I forgive you because I'm imperfect and you will forgive me because you're imperfect. And this is how we will live together. And I think that we have forgotten this. So I want to go into romantic love, but before I do that, maybe I think I would want to go into the more important love. So what you're saying here is that love is that attempt to connect so that we're not lonely to some kind of another being, a soul, as you say, the profound bit of me. So in which case, self-love would be able to connect to that profound self of me 
and get to that moment of acceptance, which basically says, I'm imperfect. I'm not just physical. I'm much more profound than that. I am a mixture of thoughts and concepts and maybe a spirit if you're religious or whatever that is. And all of that mixed together comes with blood and puke and mistakes and shame and tons of things. And all in all, I can still connect and accept, which creates that sense of self-love. Would that be a reasonable definition? Yes, absolutely. And it's a beautiful definition. And, you know, that's a major goal. That's a Himalaya. Let's put this in perspective here. Uh, What you've just described, this process of self-acceptance, to know oneself and accept oneself and accord one love, um, this is big. You know, that's the work of a lifetime. And... Other people are going to be involved in that project or or can help us in that project because, of course, this is the way in which love heals us. Interpersonal love helps us to tolerate ourselves. The kindly interpretation of ourselves by another person can recalibrate how we judge ourselves and can be so important. I mean, this is a lot of the way that therapy works. The person will go to a therapist and say, I hate myself, I'm a piece of I've never achieved anything. And the therapist will go, hang on, hang on, let's just calm down here. Uh, what do you mean? Where's this coming from? You seem perfectly nice to me. And slowly we untangle how this came, where this punitive voice, where this desire to destroy oneself came from, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a major achievement. And there's a lot of us wandering the earth who don't like ourselves very much at all. I mean, look, there's a huge deficit of love in the world. In general, I agree. In general, people don't love themselves enough and they don't love others enough. And this is not just hippie nonsense. I mean, genuinely, most of the psychosocial distress ultimately is a shortfall in this quality of love, this ability to witness oneself, witness others, accept, react with tenderness and acceptance towards oneself and others. This is really, really in shortfall. And despite all our computers and factories, et cetera, we can't seem to mass manufacture this. And what we end up with at the end of the chain is politics. Politics is really the the ultimate consequence of a million, 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 million of these little moments. And uh, thermometer reading, it's telling us that things are a little troubled. That things are very troubled. So I agree with you 100% wholeheartedly here. I think we have a deficit of love for many reasons. The most important in my view is how we replaced love, just like we replaced happiness with fun. We're not happy, so we go to a party and we call that happiness. We've replaced love with romance. And I think romance, as you often say, is probably the biggest enemy of love. It is the biggest enemy of genuine true love. So I want to take us into that because I also think some of my listeners will want practical understanding of why does love not always work. In my view, there is love, there is romance, and there is relationships. There is the process of living through that, right? And it seems that you and I agree that romance is is an interesting myth myth that started you know a few hundred years ago and is now captivating us as the target when in reality it's probably an illusion or maybe the enemy what would you say to that well look i think that some of the things that we associate with being in love in a romantic way are capturing genuine and important features the idea that someone is very special to you that you will 
share your secrets with them, be very close to them. It'll be them and no one else, blah, blah, blah. These are not bad ideas. I mean, they're very, I've been saying, you know, really the question is what's dangerous? What's the risk here? Where does the notion of romantic love lead us astray? And I think that under the guise of encouraging acceptance, closeness, honesty, romantic love forces us into a very narrow space where a lot of who we actually are can no longer be accepted. And so it then asphyxiates its own sources of initial benevolence. So the normal thing is you meet somebody and then, I mean, let's just take a very banal example, just because sometimes banal examples are are good. There's a story that tells us that when you are really in love with somebody, you need to spend all your time with them because they're just amazing. So you spend all your time with them. Now, for many, many of us, we need maybe four or five hours alone every day. Otherwise, we go crazy. We can't be with somebody, right? Suddenly, the lover says, but I thought you loved me. I'm following the romantic script, and we're on holiday in Tahiti. And you're saying you need to go to your room and be alone? You can't love me, right? So exploding myth number one, can one love and want five hours a day on one's own? Yes, but the story doesn't allow it. Let's get into this more hot potato area. You love somebody, et cetera, et cetera. And then you say, ah, that person across the road, they're pretty hot, pretty, how, I thought you loved me. You're finding this person hot. And what do you do? A romantic love tells you, well, if you are in love with someone, you, you don't notice anyone else. All you have eyes for is only one person. Now, we all know, many of us know, that this is not really possible. This is not true. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite possible to continue to find somebody else quite hot. What do you do with that? Love that had begun as this ability to fuse your soul to another soul and be recognized, sir, is suddenly running into a major problem, which is you cannot be honest about your sexuality with somebody. Oh my God. So suddenly, love and romance seem to go in opposite directions. So this is another kind of problem. Then more practical things. So a lot of the beautiful romantic idea is we will understand each other by intuition. (laughs) Two souls will meet and we will feel our way to a kind of just deep connection. Deep telepathy. It's like suddenly I will be able to read your mind. And there are some lovely moments in the early days of romantic love when it seems possible. But over a lifetime, it's not possible. Over a lifetime, but sometimes we have to go, hang on a minute, I'm going to do a three-hour PowerPoint conversation with you about how you behave in the bathroom. And it's not going to sound very romantic, but then we'll understand each other. Or here's a seminar with my mother and, uh, you know, what she means. So sometimes it doesn't sound very romantic, but it's actually true to the spirit of love. Sometimes we need to educate each other. Sometimes we need to speak in a certain way. Sometimes we need to be very realistic about where sexuality leads us, etc. And I think for many of us, we still don't have the courage to do that work within romantic love. We don't dare to to be ourselves, properly ourselves with another person. We think we'll lose them. We think we're too odd. No one's ever told us that actually, I don't know, whatever it is, maybe it's okay to spend five hours alone. Or maybe you have a different approach to sexuality. Or maybe you won't have children together. Or maybe, you know, you'll only meet every Monday or whatever it is. Maybe your script is going to be a little bit different. But the romantic narrative, which is held so dominant, 
in the modern imagination for 200 years, leaves us really only one story of how this love is meant to go. And it leaves us feeling so inadequate. Most of us are left feeling so peculiar in relation to this demand. It's quite coercive. I have to say, I mean, the statistics are just glaring in your eyes. When you say some of us know that your sexuality may not be limited to one person, I don't think there is a single human, unless they're maybe asexual or not very interested in sex, that wouldn't be every now and then attracted by another person. And to me, I always say that what we feel we shouldn't be held accountable for our actions is what we should be held accountable for. So, you know, I can feel angry. There's absolutely nothing wrong with feeling angry. It's an emotion that means there is a trigger for it, right? It's the way I act on my anger that holds me honorable or a maniac uh, that's on a rampage. And similarly, I think what happens in relationships is that we get into that silo of let's not talk about things because if we talk about them, then that defies the idea, the target of the perfect romantic love. But that in itself is the spiral that takes you out of romantic love. So here's a typical kind of disastrous relationship scenario that, that happens. Two people are in a relationship and one person is starting to feel they're trying to explain a bit of their reality to the other person. For whatever reason, the other person is not listening. The person feels disenchanted, lonely starts to feel angry. They try, they keep trying, they can't get there. There's anger, there's scratchiness, there's bitterness on both sides. That person goes off and has an affair with somebody else because they're so lonely, they're alienated. So they go off and have an affair. That The affair is discovered. The original partner goes, I thought you were supposed to love me. Oh, I'm leaving you. So suddenly the couple breaks up and everybody goes, okay, so what, what happened there? Like, oh, well, my partner had an affair. Oh, wow, how terrible. It's like, no, 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 no. Let's go back. Let's look at this through the lens of closeness and the desire for communication and what happens when that desire is stymied and how it really should have gone. You can bring people back together again from all sorts of situations that look from the romantic point of view desperate. If you take this couple I've just described, and you say to them, look, one of you was not hearing the other. We need to solve that. Then one of you responded to not being heard in a really unfortunate way. We need to understand that. And you guys both need to understand each other and understand that ultimately what's going on on both sides is a longing for closeness and a longing for honesty and understanding. You've just got in a terrible muddle. But as I say, the surrounding environment doesn't make these kinds of conversations too easy to have. And so in that case, what you're saying is that part of acceptance is that even though the situation went wrong, perhaps or probably on both sides. So the entire system broke down for some reason. The whole idea of acceptance is to say, okay, if I love you, then we might as well have a conversation. The fact that I would like to stay within romantic love with you, or maybe break it up, either way, that doesn't contradict the concept of love, which demands that we're open and honest, and we're completely showing who we are, and accepted for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in that sense, that can bring two people closer together. And I think it's an adventure in most amazing courage to, you know, as you said a few minutes ago, to accept oneself and then to do that with another person. It's thrilling to leave the script of who we are meant to be. Most of us, we're given a script by society, what it's like to be a normal father, a normal mother, a normal husband, a normal wife, a normal worker, a normal child, all these scripts. 
These scripts are almost always baloney. We try and stick to them. We get terribly muddled because they don't really help us. And some of us, and I think this is what enlightenment ultimately means, have the courage to say, hang on, I can't, I can't carry on with this anymore. There is too much that I know is not being recognized by this script. I want a richer, more honest life with myself, with those around me, and that will be a life of true love. To come back to Christianity and desperation, I speak to you as a, I'm a secular Jew, but I like Christianity. It's a very interesting religion. I do too, actually. I think it's a very interesting religion in so many ways. It's like, what is this business with the poor? Why do the poor have this role? Again, it's to do with pride. So by poor, one really ultimately means people who've lost everything and who therefore, because they've lost, they've lost their hold on the standard narrative of success. It's not going to work for them anymore. They've thrown that out of the window. They are in this new space. And that's a space of radical honesty, of authenticity, and as where they've got nothing left to lose. And, and that's when there can be true love and true knowledge of oneself and knowledge of another. But it, it's very hard when one's on the up and one's on TV, as it were. It's very hard at those moments. One's a fake. So the challenge I have is that if you look at that script of romanticism, and how our 20th century has evolved that script through movies and Hollywood and stories that are being told in a very specific way and novels that are always written around jealousy and adultery and betrayal and all of that, because that's the drama moment that draws the audience in. And then the current evolution of that script into modern world dating, modern world hookups, modern world relationship definitions, which are actually quite interestingly opposite almost to romanticism, but not in the direction of love. Where do you think we're going with all of this? Look, I think um, there are some attempts to broaden the conversation around what, let's say, a normal sexuality is. I think in the United States, Polyamory and multiple, I think it's still considered a sin by you know 92% of the population. So I think it's quite a long way to go. But look, in some areas, there's an attempt, you know, which really begins in the West with psychoanalysis in the early 20th century, where people are trying to say there's this thing called sex, it's very weird, it makes us want to do very weird things. Let's let's stop moralizing, let's just try and understand it in an unfrightened way. Let's try and look at some of the weird stuff it wants us to do. And even if we don't do it, we just want to be curious about it. And I think we're still, we're still a long way off true honesty as a culture about what we're like. The price of honesty still seems too high. Do you believe there is a difference between female and male in the concept of love? There seems to be differences in the concept of sexuality, which I actually debate to be honest. Mm. I don't think there's any difference. If you define love as a longing for self-honesty and a meeting with another, I think both genders want this. I think there are hurdles in terms of getting there, but I think that they're equally, you know, I don't necessarily buy the myth that sort of women are more open, men are less open. I've known plenty of open men and unopened women and vice versa. I, I don't think it's an interesting generalization. I think it's a challenge for everybody. But I think, yes, I think the longing for love is universal and quite similar. Sexually, I don't know. I mean, again, it's part of wanting to be known. 
and people will want all sorts of things. I totally agree. I think the distinction is because we at a level minus one, if you want, one level lower, one level deeper, we may want different things. A man may want to be a little more dominant, a woman may want to be, or the female, the feminine of the relationship might want to be a little more owned or held or sometimes dominated, which is in the last few years has become more and more accepted as a conversation, not as a generalization, but sometimes this is the case and it's become more accepted. But at one level higher, if you want, either party, either side is attempting to express what they are openly and be accepted and find someone that enjoys it. So there are women that want to be dominated and there are men that want to be dominated and there is absolutely no distinction that is gender-based because gender itself is quite fluid if you want. And I think what happens is that the real deep attempt here is I want to express my sexuality openly with you and if there is chemistry, you will actually like the things that I want to do to you and I will like the things that you want to do to me and then we have that relationship. And I think that may not always be the same person with whom you're able to talk about other things. So there can be two people who really have a wonderful connection psychologically, but one wants to be chained and hit, and the other just, that's really, really, really not their thing. And I think, again, there should be no shame. It's like, okay, we, we want different things sexually. So no one's a bad person. <laughs> I think that as I say, sexuality is such an area we're surrounded by shame and so-and-so is good and bad and this is good or bad, etc. If we could just accept our fundamental goodness and move on from there. Fundamental goodness is such an interesting term here because sadly, I mean, where I come from in the Middle East and most of emerging markets, believe it or not, perhaps other than Latin America, there is such a, a taboo around the topic of sex that children growing up are constantly told, this is the worst thing ever. You really have to hate it. It's like the only way you can sort of prevent against it is to say it's horrible. It's the worst thing that can ever happen to you. And if you're together with a man and you're pregnant, we're going to kill you. And that's start to hate sex. And there is interestingly no real point in the life of a person where that sort of little lie is corrected. It's like, imagine if the parents would go 14 weeks before the wedding and go like, you know, that stuff that we told you about, that, that was not true, forget it. Sex is actually wonderful and you can open up and if you're with, with the person that you really love, that's amazing. And so this leaves serious traumas. And to describe it differently is quite an interesting way for you to put it. It's terrible. And, um, and of course, it's so different from how a parent loves a small child. The small child is pure and innocent in the parent's eyes. There's nothing the small child can do that is going to be bad. Maybe if the child throws the cake on the floor, well, it's, you know, it's one of those things, etc. But then sex comes along in adolescence. Suddenly, it's the birth of something. If we were able to continue to see sexuality as fundamentally pure, yes, it is a powerful force. Yes, other people can get hurt. Yes, we need to take great care, etc. But this is not a sin. It's not a coincidence the religions will see it as a sin. It's a temptation of the mind. And it takes an awful lot of maturity and courage to, again, I mean, you've said it so well, it's about self-acceptance. But so is cheesecake. I mean, think about it. In reality, it's quite peculiar the way we have cheesecake and then we smudge our faces and then it comes in there and it becomes poop. If you really think of that whole process of our physical form, it's 
it's quite weird, but it's reasonably accepted to have two pieces. It's like, that's fine. No problem at all. Yes, absolutely. And those who know, think of undertakers. An undertaker knows everything about the body and our bodily self or a nurse. Think of a nurse in a psychiatric hospital. That nurse will know everything about what we're like, our desperation, our cries, our, you know, that person is like God's creature kind of thing, because they will know, they will accept and remain kind. These are the people, these are the true beacons of acceptance and of knowledge of what a human really is in, in all their extremes and extremities. But there is something not to be ignored here, Alon. So love and sex are a big reason for unhappiness in the modern world. In reality, among my friends, especially in the 20s and 30s, there is constant disappointment. There is constant pain, if you want. And there is constant confusion about, will I ever find my soulmate, the romantic perception of what love is all about? And there is something that needs to be fixed about this, something that we need to see differently. But part of the problem is people are lonely and they want to make a connection. But the world tells them the person that you can make a connection with will be one special romantic partner you'll meet on Tinder or Bumble, etc. And you'll have that special feeling and you go on a date and you go on one date and that's when you'll, you'll know. find whether this connection or else you dump them and you move on to somebody else, etc., etc. The thing is, we're really, really confused. Imagine if we changed the rules and we said, okay, young people, old people, we're going to change what the whole game is about. The game is, first of all, not about finding one special person because we just decided that's not really an interesting game to play. And it's not even really about having sex. It's just like, let's just park that for the moment. Let's worry about that. This is a game in which we're going to try and find connection. Okay. That's really the game of life. Try and find connection. It could be with someone who's very old, who's very young, who's the same gender, a different gender, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just like human connection. That's what we're going to try and find. And we're going to give you tools. One of those tools is knowing how to talk to people. Um, most of us don't know how to speak. We don't know how to reveal the bits of our personality that are going to be required in order to connect with another person. We don't know how to do it. No one's trained us. We're too scared. We don't know ourselves. So we are helpless. We're going to be useless on a date because we don't, we've never been inside. How can, we, how can we connect? We can't even connect. We haven't got the language and we haven't got the tools. So we need to skill ourselves up so that we are actually capable of connection. And then it starts to matter much less if so-and-so is hot or not, or so-and-so is this or that. or that. This starts to diminish. Okay, so maybe they're hot, an added bonus. But, oh my God, we had such a fascinating conversation. We connected. And we start to do away with this lover, not lover thing. Either they're a lover and it's just fantastic, or they're not a lover and it's just boring, etc. And we're just on the hunt for rich connections. And it's not about like, oh, they're in the friend zone. Oh, it's easy to Let's do away with this rotten paradigm of sexual partner, very special, amazing, romantic hero, or no one, nobody, maybe a casual friend you go to a party with. It's like, no, no, no. We are connecting creatures and that's the glory, that's the honey, that's the nectar that we're seeking. Anytime you get that, you've hit the jackpot. And that's what our aim should be. I will tell you openly, if you ask me, this is truly, this is how the game is. As a matter of fact, in my previous relationships, the one thing that would really, really kill me is if a romantic relationship with one person would prevent me from having connection with others. 
to me, true love, and this is why I often tell people, I love everything and everyone. I really do. I mean, I love you, man. I think you're an amazing person. I don't have any sexual intentions or living together intentions, you and I, but I feel that same feeling I feel for butterflies, I feel for my son, and I feel for a romantic partner. It's almost the same fabric to me. And the idea of being a connection junkie to me is where I think that whole concept of romanticism has broken up our world not only between couples because they're chasing a target that is almost impossible, but for the rest of us because that target somehow has the exclusivity. And by the way, if you're connecting with me, you're not supposed to be connecting with anyone else. That's too scary, right? And that is such a broken system because the way you describe it by saying, let's separate sexuality from the rest of it, somehow then everything becomes easy. It's like, you know, I'm going to have a coffee with a friend. What difference does it make if that friend is male or female? Or where does the jealousy come from? This is the irony of the terrible irony of jealousy. So jealousy is a desire to hold on more firmly to somebody who seems to be drifting away. And so the impulse is to say, you're drifting away from me. So what I will do is throw away your phone, lock you up, prevent you from going out, etc. And that will help you to be close to me. And of course, it's a doomed venture. Let's remember, we are connecting creatures. So what is the best possible way to increase connection and therefore decrease jealousy? It's to increase knowledge and a feeling of acceptance. So let's imagine I'm with somebody and I feel I'm getting attracted to somebody else. What's going to make me, hypothetical scenario, what's going to make me keener to stay with the original person? Is it being banned from seeing them? Da, 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 da. No, of course it's not. The thing that's going to make me close is if I am able to be honest about my attraction to somebody else. If I'm able to be honest about my attraction to somebody else, that's such a gift. Oh my God, you have listened with patience and understanding to the complexity of my feelings. I didn't know that this was going to happen. It seems to have happened, but you haven't censored me you haven't shamed me. Therefore, my love for you is greater because you've allowed me to be more of myself. But your ownership of me changes. Yes, it, it ceases to be a practical ownership and it becomes an emotional connection, which is ultimately what we want. I mean, we can try and tie each other up and put legal bows around each other, but that doesn't do anything ultimately. Only thing that guarantees a couple is that mutual honesty and acceptance and knowledge can have seven houses and businesses and legal agreements. It's all going to blow up unless you're able to do that work. I always think you know, the best guarantee of keeping your partner faithful is to allow them to explore the way, many ways in which, quite naturally, they want to be unfaithful. Hmm. That's a massive statement. That is a massive statement. So I fell in love with my college sweetheart. We spent 28 years together. And I still today, I mean, we've not been together for five years and I still will say publicly in front of everyone, she's the most amazing woman I ever met, right? So, you know, every human being will every now and then come across another attractive person and go like, ah, oh, that's so interesting. But I constantly, even in those situations, would compare to my Nibel and say, oh my God, but Nibel is so much better. Nibel is so much closer to me. She allows me this growth that we grew together over 28 years. And my choice would always be to go back 
to Nibel, to go back. Like I don't actually even deviate. I would stay closer to Nibel. And it wasn't because she locked me down. I was traveling all the time. I could have done anything I wanted. It's because she was always that person that allowed me that Absolutely. freedom to choose, but really gave me no choice because she was so much better than everyone else. That's right. And that's beautiful. And if only couples understood this, there would be so much less pain and misery. But my goodness, it takes courage on both parts to think, as you say, if you can offer somebody a chance of growth and self-knowledge, that's a superpower. You don't need to look a million dollars. You don't need to lock somebody up in a contract, etc. You will have a superpower that others generally do not have. You will be way ahead of the competition. And, you know, sometimes you, you do see couples that are so solid and you think, why are they so solid? What is it that ties them? And it's because they have that. They have that capacity to grow together, be honest together, connect together. And it doesn't matter what life's going to throw at them. They're going to have that. My problem with the modern world is we don't even know that's something we want to need. So we're not even training for it. In order to make a good athlete, you have to know what the sport is and what the rules are. (laughs) We haven't defined the sport or the rules. So we don't have many great athletes in this area. It's by chance. Oh, someone throws a javelin by chance, but we haven't defined. So this is one of the goals before us to try and define how we might do this. Yeah, I mean, by chance and very, very, very slim chance when you really think about it. So statistics will say, I don't know, one of every two couples will break up marriages. I think 50% of marriages end up in divorce or something like that. But that actually doesn't count the dates. And from a mathematical point of view, if you count the number of times people get together for a day, a week, a month, and then separate and add that to the statistics, it's almost like the reports we get on coronavirus where people are not reporting that they got it. But truly, I would probably say 99 out of every 100 get-togethers end up in separation. And then of the one that remains, 50% end up in divorce, which is you know, statistically saying that there is something wrong with the way we're handling this. And you're absolutely right. I found that the couples that stayed, you know, I had a, an incredible conversation with Lynn Twist the other day where I asked her how did she stay 53 years married? And she said, he was always helping me with my life as I was helping him with his. So she had that incredible life where she was touring the world and helping people in need and, you know, really working with Mother Teresa and and so on. And she would say, when I was away and he would have a vacation, he would come with me to Ethiopia instead of going to Hawaii and sit on the beach, right? And that gave us that ability to realize that there is more between us, that personal growth, that ability to support each other than just arguing about the cornflakes, as you said, you know, you make a strange sound when you eat cornflakes in one of your talks. Yes, that's right. And look, what's striking me is we don't know what we're missing. We look at a couple like that and we think, oh, it's freakish. And ever since the birth of agriculture, what we've tried to do as human beings is to produce on command something that nature seems to only throw up by accident. This is what our minds love to do. But because we're romantics, we don't systematically investigate and we're not rigorous enough. I mean, imagine if we set up a project, an organization a bit like NASA, where we said, okay, we're going to try and figure out what good couples are and how to get more of them. What are the requirements for good connection? 
we would come up with amazing results. And people would look back and go, oh my God, do you remember that era of history? But people were just desperate. They kept trying to marry in this <laughs> odd way and they would go out on dates. And they would, you know, we would look back like, you know, we look at medieval people trying to do brain surgery. We just say, oh my God, those guys, they were just, they just didn't understand anything. And I think we're at that level. I mean, literally, we are at that level. We have not begun to know what the problems are. And I, I literally think that medieval brain surgery is a good Analogy, yeah. model. Yeah. That's the way that we are operating our love lives. And we're getting about the same results as for trepanning. So my daughter's 25. What would you tell her? I have to admit, I'm not going to say anything because if I say it, it's going to be daddy speaking. So not me. But I want my daughter to find an amazing person in her life. Person that really helps her grow, loves her, makes her, I don't want to say makes her happy, but at least allow her to find her own happiness. What should a 25-year-old do? Well, I think a lot of the work should be in herself, outside, without meeting somebody. It's not, not just about meeting the special person. Because I, I do think that a lot of it is, can she be the person who can understand herself and the mechanics of love as we've defined it as a kind of connection? So that when she meets a quite nice person, who maybe has thought about some of these things, but not that deeply, or maybe has never thought about them, she can show him, she can guide him, because she's done it with herself. She's understood what love is in herself. So rather than seeing her as a kind of tabula rasa, she's just waiting for a person to ignite her soul. No, she can deepen her connection with her own deep self, and she can become ready for the kind of relationship she will want. Ultimately, all she will need is a man, if she wants a man, a man who, a person who is open to that journey. But no other qualification is needed. I love this. I love the way that you describe love as a journey. One of the biggest challenges we have, actually, is that most of the script that we get about romanticism is documented in Hollywood movies up to the moment where you fall in love. And that's actually, if you ask someone like me who spent 28 years with a wonderful woman, that was basically the starting point. And man, it was hard work sometimes, and it was amazing roller coasters sometimes, and it was a ton of fun other times. But it was the journey. The 28 years was actually the love. It wasn't falling in love. And I think that journey is quite missed. Yes, that's right. We are just collectively as a society at the very, very beginning. We have no clue. <laughs> That's not very encouraging at all. <laughs> well, no, but I think it is encouraging. I think so often in many situations, we see ourselves as late on in history. We think, ah, oh, we've been around so long, etc. We're just getting going as a species. I mean, you know, you have a sense of geological time and how long our species been around, etc. We're just starting. I mean, Homo sapiens, 200,000 years. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus was around. It's just the beginning. It's just the start. It's not a long time ago, yeah. It's not a surprise that we should be finding this. So in other words, we should be ready to be pioneers in this area and not feel that we're somehow late to a party that we've not understood. Because often you feel, everyone else knows I'm, I'm late at the party. You know, what's going on? I've missed, understood something. No, 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 no. No one's understood anything. You're a pioneer. Mm -hmm. and let's try and work this out. So that kind of spirit 
it can, can be very helpful for us. So one of the things that allowed me to really become a happier than average person in life is I actually recognize the non-issues, if you ask me. The fact that every young person I know when they break up with their first love, it's like the end of the freaking world. And every person that has broken up with their first love and is just one lover later, they go like, yeah, so it happens. Like it almost happens 100% of the time. Like literally, I know very few people in history that died on their deathbed together when they met when they were 16, right? It just doesn't happen that way. So it's a non-issue sometimes to try and take the journey as a journey. What other non-issues do you think there are? What are the other big non-issues that nevertheless seem to trouble a lot of people? I think the big deal, and again, sadly, there is sort of a gender disadvantage, is that women have a bit of an earlier biological clock, and so they start to panic. And now more and more, you know, because I have conversations with tens of thousands of people, it starts too early. So now that whole panic starts to show up, even though I I would probably say in my culture, it showed up when the woman was 18. It's like, are you not married yet? Right. But in the West, it wasn't that way. But today I get women in their late twenties and early thirties saying, oh my God, I'm late. And the truth is, of course, that's a challenge, but it's a non-issue. In my view, it is, well, you have one of two choices, honestly, on if you think about it from a game theory point of view, you can either find a that you spend the rest of your, your life with and, and you're not late anymore, or you can just keep looking until you find someone suitable and accept them and then move on from there. And I think if it's positioned that way, then you're somehow able to deal with the situation as a journey rather than just get bogged down with issues, right? And there are many others. I'm sure you come across a lot of people that tell you the horror stories they face with love. Absolutely. But also, you know, outside of love, I mean, there are so many people waste their time wanting to be loved by strangers, for example. Enormous amount of energy is devoted to thinking about what other people think. And it's such a tricky one. Obviously, our evolutionary history has made us very, very sensitive to that. But like many things, those impulses can be overexcited and unhelpfully excited, and it can ruin chunks of our lives, etc. I want to go back to actually a question that really is something that I've been giving a lot of thought to. But before I do that, I normally uh, ask my listeners to remember one thing. So I'm on a mission to make a billion people happy. If you're with us until now, uh, me and Elon, then you must have found something inspiring in our conversation. So please share it with others. Please tell others what you learned. Please tell them that they need to invest in their happiness. They need to invest in finding themselves. I think this is very important. And you'll be surprised that putting something on social media that helps others find their own happiness is a small step on your side, but it can scale to millions. And so please help us out and spread the word. And I want to ask you a question that I don't have the answer to. So when you talk to spiritual people or spiritual seekers, maybe not yet spiritual, they'll always tell me, oh, God is love. And my engineering mind understands the sign equal as equal. This is it. If you tell me God is love, then this is it. God is nothing else and love is nothing else. And that's it. And when I borrow from your analogy around love is connection. Where does that concept of God come into that game at all? One way to think of God is God is the total knowledge that there might be of human nature and reality. 
So each of us has a little silo, a very private bit of this knowledge. We don't know what's in everybody else's silo. We look nervously over the edge and we wonder what might be in it. We gingerly share a bit of our reality at the best moments of our lives. We're able to do this. God is, as it were, the eye in the sky that looks down and can see the whole shebang, can see everything about everything, has an understanding of the totality of human sexuality, the totality of human desire, the totality of human ambition, of human sadness, of human regret, etc. All of this is known. So in that sense, God is, is total knowledge and total connection with all the facts and the normally disguised and secretly held bits of human nature. And, you know, this isn't just a fanciful image. I mean, in religions, this is, of course, why God is such a relief, because, you know, no one understands, but you turn to God, and God is hearing. God knows about how you feel about your partner, or about your job, or about the secret desires, or, you know, God knows and, and is able to see and accept. So in that sense, that is a kind of universal love. And in that case, by creating love, you're belonging to that overall top knowledge, is that? Um, yes, yes, yes. You're acceding to a little bit of the knowledge of, of the whole. And, and, you know, I think this is a major impulse in human beings to stumble out of their individual darkness towards a, a knowledge of the totality before they are plunged back into the blackness. And of course, we can only ever briefly glimpse a very small bit. And this is some of the agony of being a finite mortal. You know, we know that we're just, we have a flickering candle and our, our brains are so small and so insufficient to the full kind of mystery that we're plunged into. And we're so lazy, so unable to really gather our mental strengths to take on board what we need to. So I'll close with one of my favorite talks of yours, where you say, look, you know, if you really want to fix your relationship, there are a couple of things, or you said three things, but the two that really stuck with me were treat them as children and laugh about them. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> so what do you mean by treating my adult like, you know, if I have a partner and she's fully grown, I'm guessing, I hope, right? And what is that treat her as children thing? Look, I think it's got to do with the interpretation of motives. When we deal with small children, without almost noticing, we are incredibly generous about the motives which they have for doing bad stuff. So if you see a kid behaving badly, your kid especially behaving badly, you will say, it's tired, it's got toothache, it's got a feeling of jealousy, it's something like this, right? Yeah. When you see an adult, you think, it's evil, it's trying to do me down, it's got me in its sights, it's been plotting to be evil since the day it was born, mm -hmm. etc. It's not true to human nature. Most people who do bad stuff are worried, ignorant, lost, at sea. That's why they do bad stuff, in the same way the children are. And they're tired as well. Most people do bad things when they're very tired. But we forget this. We don't bring a loving parent's sense of judgment to bear on those who behave badly as, as adults. But of course, we should. And it's no insult to treat adults like small children. It's not that we're infantilizing them. We are doing them the honor of recognizing 
that an adult human being is at least 50% child. Totally. Um, especially late at night, you know, and when they're tired and stressed, etc. We revert back to our earlier selves. And that's not patronizing. That's an honor to recognize that. So I think that's an important thing. You mentioned humor. I mean, humor ultimately is born out of paradox and pessimism. Humor is paradox plus pessimism. There are so many paradoxes in which we're stuck. We're hugely intelligent, but completely stupid. Um, <laughs> we're not worth spending time with and we're the most precious people in the world, etc. We're half angel, half devil, etc. We are this constant paradox. And I think the richest kind of humor juggles with these incompatibilities. Yeah. Um, and I think that when you see a loving couple, you know, they'll sometimes insult each other in brutal ways, but you know it's been done out of love. Then labeling with humor they're saying the unsayable. What love it takes to be able to do that, to be able still to have a kind, benevolent eye. I, I was thinking of it, you change from seeing your partner as an idiot to seeing them as a lovable idiot. <laughs> oh my God, you're such an adorable idiot, right? <laughs> That's such progress. <laughs> if you're able to say you're an adorable idiot and the other person's able to laugh at it, then you're, you're on the way. Oh man. And I think, you know, so many couples don't know how to tease each other. We all need to be teased because we're all so ridiculous. And teasing <laughs> of bringing the ridiculousness of, of your partner more into focus, but in a loving way. So benevolent teasing, not the nasty kind, benevolent teasing is one of the most generous acts. You're such a lovable idiot, Alana. I really adore how much I learn from you. Because I'm very accurate with my mathematics, I would want to say that I'm one of your biggest fans but I don't know the others, so I cannot prove that. I'm between the people that I'm a fan of, you're one of the highest. I enjoy so much listening to your views. I'm sure many of my listeners have learned quite a bit. We're all out there looking for connection. And I think connection happens when we connect with ourselves first. And I heard you many times saying, until you know yourself, until you love yourself, your chances of finding another to love you is very, very limited. And I think the idea is to accept, is to be open enough. The only way for you to find true love, as per the way you described it, which is for someone to accept you and connect with you is that at least they get to know you. And the only way they get to know you is through that honesty, through that ability to be open enough and say, I'm an idiot and it's who I am. And if you're willing to accept me, then this is real love. And if you're not, then maybe that's okay too. And I think that idea of us trying to connect so desperately that love is the opposite of loneliness, of isolation, such a profound point of view. I don't know how to thank you enough. This has been an incredibly enlightening, incredibly joyful conversation. I hope you have all the love in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. And congratulations on all you do. And for all of you who joined us, Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.